reading here. If you have your Bible, if you'll turn please to the book of Exodus chapter number 3. Exodus chapter number 3 this evening. We simply titled the message, not that titles make much, but they uh, give you something to work with from, and uh, titled it a workshop on worship. The whole idea of that is that with the case with Moses, uh, the Lord was uh, getting him ready for the ministry that he was going to be assigned, and uh, part of the point of that is that um, I would have thought, I would have personally taken to heart that he would explain to him how you're going to survive in the wilderness, how you're going to make it, and how's it going to work, and how you're going to lead all this group of people out of Egypt, and I'm going to give you the power, but how are you going to go about all this? And I'm uh, somewhat surprised that the Lord didn't say something about, I'll I'll explain it to you, I'll teach you, I'll show you. But he didn't say that. He doesn't say a word, in fact, about any of that. What he does say, and what he does mention, is something I think fascinating and unusual. Look at chapter 3, and note down, if you would, verse number 2. And the Bible says that uh, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest, is holy ground. What's important about that is that um, is as seemingly insignificant as this small, simple act is, it really sets the tone for the way that the Lord is going to deal with Moses. And uh, the tone of that is that Moses would need to learn that um, you don't just barge into God's presence. There has to be preparatory work, you know, um, there's the psalmist, and I can't think of the verse at the moment. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you. Now, the thing about that is the word acceptable in the Hebrew carries with it the ideal, let it be the access whereby I come into your presence. You see, we have this idea, uh, foolishly, but it's there. I've had it, and I'm sure you've had it, is that uh, you can do just about anything, and you somehow get this thing that just because you may have thought it, it doesn't have any offense to God, and so you can walk into his presence and you just pour out all your prayer requests and start piling up all the things you need from him. Not aware, not aware, <clears throat> not aware, or not even perceptive enough to say, uh, you know, he knows what my attitude is about this. He knows what, I, what really my thoughts are behind what I've done, actions I took. And he understands those. And he's not fooled a bit. People do things all the time that they would act in one way and then behind the scene, behind the thought and the actions that nobody sees but God alone. He knows it weren't right. So when the psalmist wrote what he did about let the thoughts, meditations of my heart, let them be acceptable or accessible. Let them be the way through which I walk to you he has the same idea that Moses has in this case that the Lord turns to him and says, Stop, don't come any closer. And I want you to take off your shoes because all this area where I am and my influence is most directly is holy ground. Now, when we come to church services, if you're not careful, you come in with a, a somewhat of a social connect. You know, we know people, they're family, friends, and loved ones, and, and so we, we enjoy that social connect. But the truth of the matter is, uh, we need to take it up a level when we get our hearts ready for worship. That's why I'm not too, uh, I'm not too, um, bothered by people who come in and just take out their Bibles and start reading before the service and meditating on things that will help their hearts get clean and clear, their minds be cleaned so that they can receive the Word of God with gladness and let the Word of God dwell in them richly. But the other side of the coin is, if you can get into a bunch of conversations, and I've said this part before, and I've said it probably 
50 times over the 30 years or so I've been here. That's why I don't do a lot of talking before the services. I have my mind set on what I need to say, what the Lord's given me, and I really don't want it compromised. Now, you can let things compromise your thoughts, and uh, it sort of disqualifies the prospect of real worship. So when we come to the thing of what Moses has done, it can be a practical lesson for us. That is, take off your shoes. Why would he want him to take off his shoes? What, what does the shoes represent and say to us that he needed to take the shoes off? Why didn't he tell him to take off his tunic? Why didn't he tell him to, to go comb his hair or take off the uh, hooded uh, thing that he would have covered his hair and head out in the backside of the desert? Why didn't he tell him to take that off? Why did he tell him to take the shoes off? Because it's a word that we use for, for shoes. Uh, Hebrews carried with it the idea that it was more than just footwear. It was, um, it was sort of a, uh, oh, and by the way, um, in the, uh, what he called forensic science now, they'll tell you this is absolutely true. Your shoes tell you where you've been. They tell you where you've been. In forensic, they can tell what part of Franklin you walked in. You know, uh, they're, I'm talking about soil, not, not concrete, and not asphalt. But if you get into the soil of Franklin, Indiana, and you get into trouble, and you wear your shoes, and they ask to see your shoes, and they get a search warrant, and they take your shoes, your shoes will tell them where you've been. The same is true from the Hebrew perspective of the word. carries with it the idea that shoes represent where you've been, and in essence, what you've been doing. The thing about it is, taking the shoes off, the Lord was saying to him, I want you to take yourself away from all the stuff you've engaged yourself in all week. So I want you to take your shoes off out there, and then you can come up here and come closer. By the way, is this the same concept? Look, if you would, from where you are in Exodus uh, chapter number 3. Look over to Exodus chapter 19. I referred to this some weeks ago when we were in this passage, but uh, look, if you would, at Exodus chapter 19, and go down to about, hold down into about verse um, 9, and note carefully, this is a case where Israel is at Mount Sinai, and the Lord said in verse 9 of chapter 19 of Exodus, uh, said unto Moses, he said, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, and the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses uh, told the words of the people unto the Lord, and the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today. Sanctify, a, a simple word that means set them apart uh, do the things that would uh, show that they are setting themselves apart unto God. In a simple word, uh, let them take off their shoes. Let them be pure and set apart, separated from their normal routines of things today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes even. That's not only to take off your shoes, but it's also to wash your garments because they too would pick up the, the corruption and places you've gone, people you've been around, and things you may have gauged in. Verse 11, And be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon the Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. The point he makes about this is that uh, it reflects and it uh, underlines the holiness of God. And the holiness of God is something we just don't hear much about anymore. You know, uh, very frankly, um, much of what you see on television and movies and DVDs and whatever, uh, if it's secular produced, you can almost be sure it's got sin in it. And what we don't like to think about is it, we have this old foggy idea and this old school idea that uh, we don't want anybody controlling what we enjoy. Now, don't kid yourself. There is pleasure in sin for a season. Always has been, always will be. Anybody who tells you there's no pleasure in sin is lying through his teeth. So the fact is there's pleasure in sin. I'm not getting up here and telling you don't quit or to quit sinning because there's no fun in it. I'm telling you that you ought not sin. You ought be holy because the Lord said, I am holy, be ye holy. 
He gives us a simple command. By the way, that's what uh, Tozer used to teach concerning practicing the presence of God. He wasn't wanting you to practice the presence of God so you couldn't do all the things that the world does and, and enjoy them. So that wasn't the purpose. Practicing the presence of God was to be able so you'd have an open access to God because your heart would be pure, your brain and thoughts would be good, and you'd be able to talk to God whenever and however you needed to on the spot. See, we got that idea you can do that. That's just not true. Christians just can't stop and say, okay, God, here's my problem. You know, I'm about to roll into this gasoline truck and it's going to explode and it's going to kill me and my family. Please, God, undertake for me. And we think we can just do that while we've got a stack of sin that we've just been dealing with privately and we've not really uh, separated from it. We've just been toying with it and we still do it and we think it's okay because everybody does it and, and, and God surely doesn't expect us to, to separate from every single little bitty tiny toothpick type sin. Surely he doesn't do that. Oh, yes, he does. Why? Because he's perfectly holy. And our problem is we minimize all that. Everything you've got in your home that does not project the holiness of God ought to go to the dump tomorrow. But we wouldn't do that because some of those things we'd say, well, there, there's, some st- there's some good in this. And so we play the minimize game. We minimize it. Oh, it's not that bad. It's not a big... Let me tell you something. If God would kill somebody for lying as he did in the case with Ananias and Sapphira, and lying in a in a very simple way, you know, it wasn't that they didn't give everything. It wasn't that they gave something to the, the apostles for the Lord's work. It's that they said they gave it all. Now, there's not a lot of difference between a little and a all. I mean, everybody, a little and all. Did you make any, did you eat much at lunch? A little or all? Well, there's not a big deal about that. But it was with God. God saw the difference between all and a little. And God said, and there through Peter, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie unto God? And they didn't even get they didn't even live long enough to eat the evening meal. Death came swift and direct. And yet we in America in our Baptist churches we do things and think things and act in certain ways that betray the fact that we're not thinking about holiness. We're thinking about enjoyment. What's fun? And don't touch my thing. That's fun. That's why it's like old fogey. You know, when a pastor preaches on something like this, uh, you know, he's being—he's a killjoy. He's a stick in the mud. I am. I don't doubt that at all. I'm a take off your shoes kind of guy. And I believe God's people need to get back to it. It's interesting to me. Would you please open your Bible back up to where you are in Exodus 19. We've read that text and let me take you back to Genesis chapter number 22. Genesis chapter 22. And as we talk about the fact that Moses is getting us ready with a simple word about take off his shoes, he's going to come in touch with God and come close to the Lord and the ground's holy and so he's going to come into what we would call communion which is is worship lifting up the lord praising him and so forth but in genesis chapter 22 you have an interesting thing you have uh, the first use of the word in the bible of the word worship look at chapter 22 it came to pass verse 1 says in chapter 22 came to pass after these things that god did tempt abraham and do remember the word tempt carries with it in this context, attested him. God did test Abraham. And he said unto him, Abram, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee unto the land of Moriah. Offer him there for a burnt offering upon, the one, upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which the Lord had told him. Verse 5 or verse 4. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. The first thing you gather from this, if he's going to uh, go to this place and sacrifice his son, which would be in the context of worship, He's sure gone to a lot of trouble to get it done. 
He's on his third day in verse number four. Then on the third day, that's after he has loaded up all the wood and carrying it and getting it all produced and carrying two of his servants to carry this wood and whatever else God had told him to take. He's on his third day and he finally sees the place where he's going to be. Have you complained about coming to worship services? Inconvenience, it's too early. You know, we, we just it's just too much on Sunday morning. What if you had to travel three days to get there? Oh, oh, by the way, that would purge a lot of churches if it costs you more to worship. Here's a three-day visit just to get to the place where God told him to go sacrifice his son. Abraham didn't, he didn't argue. He didn't say, isn't there something closer? Couldn't we go down to some local uh, watershed valley and be down there and spend a day there and worship? Couldn't we? He didn't say that. The Lord said, I'll show you the mountain. You just get up there. And he travels three days, finally sees the place that he's going to be. Verse 5 says, And Abraham said unto his young, his young men, Abide you here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder. Notice, and he says, And worship and come again to you. Now that's the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. What's important about it is that what the Lord told him to do when he got to this place was to sacrifice his son. So there's an equation here and a formula working together with the business that, that real worship always, always will cost you something. You remember when uh, the thing with um, uh, David offered a sacrifice? You know, I, I, the, and this is not in my notes, so I'm a little foggy-headed about it. But the thing about it was when they were going to offer a sacrifice to turn back the plague. I believe it was a plague that came upon them. And they came to uh, this um, this man's, um, uh, I don't know, it was farm equipment, whatever. And the fact is that, that David came there and wanted to make a sacrifice. And the exchange somewhere in there gets to this point. He said, I will not offer the Lord anything that does not cost me. That's the secret of worship. It should cost you your time. You shouldn't complain about going to church. You shouldn't complain about getting up early, getting dressed, and getting to church services to worship. It should cost you something. It's a given. It costs us stuff. It cost Abraham several days because on the third day he finds the place, but on the third day he stops and gets his servants to stay there with the asses, and he then takes his son and heads up to the place where he's going to sacrifice his son. So that may have been half a day or it may have been a third of the day, but he had to go even further than that. But he never says a word, never complains a moment, because he tells the men what we're going up here for is my son, the lad, and I are going up there to worship, and we will come back. I say to you that it costs people to worship. Now here's a question for you. Did your worship today cost you something? Did it cost you something? Did you have to give up something to get it done? Did it, did, did it infringe on you in any way whatsoever? If it didn't, it probably wasn't worth what you come to go or to give. It costs the worship. And it's not... Uh, it's not a thing that the Lord puts a price tag on it and says this is what it's going to cost you. But it's a matter of fact that the Lord is saying to us in his own unique and simple way, um, whatever you do that pertains to me and you bowing the knee and worshiping me, it needs to be something that to you is costly. And, and it costs us when we, when we take an offering around here, we, we receive the offering in the context of worship. We worship the Lord with our gifts and offering. That's a, that's a process of worship. And it costs us something. And, and nobody said it was a free ride. And, and we're not talking about giving to the New Life Baptist Church as something cost. That is, we don't charge. Giving is between the individual and the Lord. We believe the Bible sets standards for it. And God's people will follow those standards as they see them in the Word. And we have no problem with that. But it is still costly. If you're going to worship the Lord with your giving... It's going to cost you something. And some people will worship the Lord in a lot of ways, but they won't worship in a way that costs them anything. As long as it's all free, I'm on board, they'll say. But when you start talking about costs, count me out. I'm not in that program. But the Bible knows nothing about any kind of worship that was not costly. And in this is the best illustration of it. This wasn't just a, a offering of a lamb. God told him to go up there and 
sacrifice his own son. Sacrifice your own son. You talk about costly, but you talk about a man of great faith. He never even stumbled or murmured about that. You don't see any any halting attitude about taking uh, Isaac up there and putting him on this altar and cutting his throat and killing him and then offering him as a sacrifice to God. You don't see a single murmur in here. You don't see a single complaint. You don't see anything about Abraham saying anything that suggests to you that he had anything that less than absolute perfect faith, as it were, in the Lord for calling him to do it. If he's going to call me to do it, then he's got a plan. And if he's got a plan, I'm on board. So I say to you, worship is a, a lot more than uh, what we so often and so frequently refer to it as of just a group of people getting into a church service and open up a song book and sing a couple of songs and walk and go home and say, yeah, we were in worship today. The question, you may be in a building where they do it. The question is, did you do it? Did it cost you? So there's something else to be noted. Go from where you are in Genesis chapter number 22. Uh, go over to the oldest book of the Bible. Genesis is the first book, but it's not the oldest book. Look at the oldest book of the Bible, chapter number 1 of the book of Job. Job is the oldest book of the Bible. It predates um, Genesis and the others and that, the events within it. In chapter 1, Job chapter 1, go down and skip down a lot of the verses, of a lot of things we could talk about, but skip all the way down to uh, verse number oh, 18. Job 1 18. In fact, verse 17 is very similar, but verse 18 continues the tragedies that are happening to Job and his family. Verse 18, while he was yet speaking, and that's what verse 17 starts out as saying, while he was yet speaking, verse 18, they came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. They are dead. They are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now, here's a case where God didn't tell Job, uh, look, I'm going to allow Satan to make this strong wind come, and this strong wind's going to blow a house down, and your sons and daughters are going to be in this building, and they're going to be there having a good time, and, and what's going to happen is the place is going to fall down on them, and it's going to kill them. God didn't tell Job that. What he told Satan was, you can do everything but kill Job. You can, you can test his faith. You can slam his faith. You can beat upon him. You can do anything you want, but you can't kill him. So what does Satan do? And by the way, uh, we can talk about God behind the wind, but uh, God behind Satan because Satan's on a chain and he can do only what God allows him. But this is ascribed to what Satan did. So Satan does the wind job on him. It kills this family. And what interestingly about this, and this is what uh, I think of the whole book of Job, this is the thing that lifts my heart and my soul. Look, if you would, then in verse number 20. And in verse number 20, then Job arose. Now he's lost a lot of stuff. You know, he had the... Um, uh, the bands of the Chaldeans that came against him in verse number 17 and um, carried uh, his, and they fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants in verse 17. Verse 18, uh, his sons uh, and, and their sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in, a, in his elder brother's home. The great wind came and destroyed the place, fell on the young men, and not necessarily the girls, but the young men, and they are dead. And this person who came to tell him and give this report is the only one survived. And then verse 20, out of nowhere, the Bible said, Job arose, he rent his mantle, he shaved his head, he fell down upon the ground, and he what? He what? I can't hear you. He worshipped. Lost his sons lost a lot of his possessions in verse 17 and verse 16 likewise. And yet Job never missed a beat. He just simply arose. He didn't scream and cry and yell and jump and kick and have a, a, a fit. He just arose. He rent his mantle. He shaved his head. 
he fell down upon the ground and he worshipped. Now, may I say to you that probably, and you can debate this if you like, probably in your life, when you lost the most, you worshipped the best. If you've ever had something that you lost that you really loved, and you really, your heart was broken beyond anything you'd ever imagine, you probably, though you would not understand it, nor would I, you were probably closer to the Lord at that moment than you've ever been in your whole life. I find it interesting, I really do. I find it interesting that Jesus Christ never laughed. There's no record in the whole of the Bible of Jesus Christ ever laughing. Not one. There's no evidence that there were a lot of laughter even among the apostles. You might find a smidgen here and there, but you won't find much. Laughing was not a part of the early church leaders. I, I don't know why. I mean, everybody likes to laugh. But America's taking it to a whole new level now. We bring comedians who are sanctified into church services to get Christians to laugh. Now look, I believe the Bible teaches you to have joy, but I don't think it teaches you that you need to laugh. Now I know I'm resigning, I'm leaving, so you don't need to worry about, you know, this guy's nuts, he's crazy, he's about to jump off a bridge. No, I'm not. I just simply tell you that our society often drives the spirit of churches concerning worship. And one of the things they like to do is they like to tell us that you folks are cold and stilted and you, you don't have this joy about you. Oh, yes, we do. We don't hang our joy out on a bunch of jokes. We hang our joy on something that's got depth and roots and established and something that will be here tomorrow when everything else is blown apart. And that's why Job can lose all of his family, all of his goods, and all of his possession, and even have his wife look at him and say, you're crazier than a nut, curse God, and let him kill you. And that's not a thing about what Job said. Job just said, hey, shall I take good from the hand of the Lord and not evil? I mean, that's not a guy who's crazy and is in a straitjacket. This is a guy that's got something. You know what he's got? He's got a joy inside his heart that the God in heaven that he's trusted is in charge. And he trusts him explicitly. Now look, that's when he worshipped. Our worship can be frivolous. We can just say, we're going to worship. And we think there's a light comes on, and we just start worshipping. That's not really what happens. Greatest worship, I believe with all my heart, the greatest worship you do is probably when you're your lowest. Because when you think of yourself the way you really are, as Paul said, I'm nothing, when you get to thinking you're nothing and he's everything, you're about ready to start worshiping. But sometimes God has to take everything away from you so you really understand you're nothing. You're absolutely nothing. But our world says, oh no, everybody's somebody. Very important somebody's. And, and don't ever think of yourself. Don't ever put yourself down. And don't, don't ever, I, I don't have to. I am down. I'm a nobody who knows somebody that can save everybody and change everything. And God has and will change people in ways that I can't even comprehend. And I worship Him for what He's done. And I wish that it were so that we Bible-believing Christians would not have to get ourselves in a painful condition and lose so much before we really learn to worship. Oh, that we could come into every service and our hearts would be broken over our sin. Every service. Yes, I mean every service. Because every week we sin. And oh, that we came to church and we came in here with a broken heart over our sin. Whether it be an attitude, whether it be an action, whether it be a deed, whether it be a, uh, some kind of failure to do what we should have done that we didn't do for a brother or sister in Christ and to encourage the body, whatever it might be and however it might be classified, and even though we might minimize it, God knows that it's sin. But oh, that God's people could come to the services to worship and their hearts would not come in the least bit arrogant, proud, think we're something, we're somebody but see ourselves for who we really are. Sinners saved 
by the grace of God. Not going to heaven because we've earned a spot there and not because we put up enough money that we have rented a place to stay and live for the rest of eternity, but rather coming because God has had mercy upon us and He saved us for His Son's sake, not for ours. He didn't save you or me for our sake. He saved you and me for His Son's sake that we might take many sons to glory. And that's going to honor the Lord Jesus. In fact, one of the great days, I believe, will be when the Lord Jesus Christ presents to the Father all of these sons that He's saved and changed. But, as somebody says, that's too deep for our thinking of worship. Oh, no, it's not. We just have gotten ourselves into a man-centered kind of worship. We try to do music in churches now that make sure that people enjoy it. You'll forgive me. I don't care whether you enjoy the music or not. It's Brother Mike chooses that music and sets it aside and thinks of what's good for the church and what we need, and we sing that. I care that you somehow use that as a, a tool to really lift your voices in praise and adoration to the Lord Jesus Christ for what He's done in your life in changing you from glory to glory on a constant basis. I don't care whether you like it or not. But frankly, excuse me, forgive me, I don't think God cares whether you like it or not. We've just got too caught up in pleasing ourselves with what we think worship should be. Uh, I, I, it would just um, it stagger most believers' minds to think that they would have to get in a position like Abraham did and be asked to give up a son or a daughter, sacrifice them. I mean, this is not by accident. This is by divine design. Go up there and sacrifice your son to me on Mount Moriah. When you get up there, there's this series of mountains. I'll show you which one I want you to do it on. Very specific. And it's not the case where Satan had come before the Lord and brought up your name and said, Look, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to really wreak havoc in this family's life. And let's say the Lord said, Okay, you can go do it. And the devil gets busy and brings all kinds of carnage into your life and corruption and problems and heartache and sorrow and tears. What would be the first thing you would do? Could I dare hope? that you'd fall on your face and worship God. You'll forgive me, but that's going to take some spiritual maturity. That doesn't happen to the Sunday morning crowd, you know. That's not going to happen to other people. It's going to happen to people who really have time with the Lord on a weekly basis, who worship the Lord privately, so when they come to church on Sunday, they can encourage corporate worship. Whether our church is a worshiping church is not whether we sing certain songs on Sunday morning and you sing with all your heart and Brother Mike leads us, the ladies play the instruments and I get up here and sort of encourage you in a spiritual way. That's not necessarily it. What has, makes a church a worshiping church when its people worship the Lord privately? Privately. Our worship services will never be as much as what they should be unless every member of this fellowship who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, then they get alone with God, they worship Him. They praise Him and they thank Him for saving them. Poor lost sinners who had no right or merit and He saved us for Christ's sake. And when we get alone and we do that and we, we talk about our devotions and our devotional time, that's what devotions are. Devotion carries the ideal of devotedness. Devotedness carries the ideal of worshiping God. And the reason that Job could bow and shave his head, pull and stretch his mantle and get down on his knees before God and worship Him is because Job had done it before. This is not strange territory for Job. This is not somewhere he's never been before. This is a place he's been before, and he's familiar with it. He knows full well when all of these kind of calamities come into your life, you don't start complaining, you don't start screaming, and you don't start running to somebody who can get you out of it. You bow before the Lord God of the heavens who allowed it to come into your life with purpose. If God never moves without purpose and plan, as Ron Hamilton has written in his good song, then everything God does is tailor-made to our situation. I can't think of a better reason to worship Him than to know that everything that He puts into my life or allows into my life or anything that He allows cross my path that He's got a purpose and plan for, 
I, I can't I can't imagine anything greater to worship him for, but there are many other things you should worship him for. So here you have it in the book of Genesis, the first time it's used. Here in the book of Job, you have the oldest book of the Bible, and the first time that it's used. I want you to take you back now to Exodus chapter number 3. When you get back to Exodus chapter number 3, and we see this uh, setting and circumstance which um, Moses is, and uh, but for a moment, thinking in terms of what the Lord is doing to prepare him for what's ahead of him, it's important to me for you to understand that this business about holy ground and about coming to the Lord with being clean-footed, as somebody called it, uh, taking off your shoes and understanding you're walking on holy ground, would eliminate sometimes the what we call the excess talk that we do that probably just digs us a deeper hole to get out of to worship. See, uh, Here's a good illustration. If if you were talking to somebody uh, in a service, let's say on a Sunday morning, and let's say today you came in and you started a conversation with somebody, and let's say that you begin to speak about something the president did that you liked, and it just so happened that the person with whom you were speaking thought the same thing you said about what the president did that you liked, he said, that's the stupidest, dumbest most ignorant thing that's ever been done in the presidency. And you look at him and say, excuse me, I thought it was brilliant. And he says, stupid brilliance, what that was, stupid brilliant. And you say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't appreciate you uh, telling me that something I think is good, you think is so stupid. I don't appreciate that at all. Now we dug a hole, and we've got to get out of it because we've got two people, same building, same worship service that are on different pages. You see, what you have to do in uh, coming to worship, you have to work it to get ready for it. You just don't walk in and start conversation with somebody who's going to disagree with you. And very honestly, you always, as somebody told me, my, my uh, pastor when I was growing up always said, don't talk about anything in a church service that does not have eternal value to it. That's pretty good advice. Because I'll tell you why. We can all find things we disagree with. Uh, Shirley's talk, I have never liked yellow. I will never like yellow. And I, I think it's the awfulest thing that has ever been allowed to be created. But I'm not mad. The point may I can find something I don't like about anything, anytime, anywhere, and somebody brings it to my attention and say, no, I don't like that. I, I don't like that at all. We've had people who, we have these fans. They have a fan on this side, and we turn it, it's called an air handler, and it blows out from the top, not just the air conditioner out of the floor, but the air handler blows out from the top to get the building cooler quicker. There are people who don't like that. I believe, the, I believe that's why the death moved from this side to that side. They didn't like it. Now, they didn't split the church, but they moved from the south side to the north side. I'm a southerner. I like the south side of the church, but anyway, that's either. The fact of the matter is, everybody can find something that will rub you wrong. So what you don't do is you don't come to a church service and socialize to the point that you get into a disagreement. You hurt the worship service. We can't have people in a service where we've come to worship having something that's rubbed them raw and made them a little irritated and they just can't wait till they go fix it their way. That's not going to get us anywhere. But our problem with that is we, we just don't take worship seriously. We, we just think you can come in, sit down, pick up a songbook, sing a song, preacher preaches, we say dismissed and pray a prayer, and you go home and we worship. I don't know if anything could be further from the truth than that. Let me show you one thing before we go, and this is not the gist of the whole message, because I'll say more about it the next time we're together. But look, if you would, look over to the book of Luke and Luke's Gospel. Look at Luke chapter 10. You know the passage. It's uh, very, very familiar, and for that reason I've spoken of it on it expositionally before, and I'm not going to take the time now to rehash that. Not that we couldn't use it. My, my own heart could use it again. But look over to chapter 10 uh, of the book of Luke, and look over, if you would, at verse number 38. You know the stories between Martha and Mary. In verse 38, Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. 
She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. We can assume by this that Martha paid the rent and Mary didn't. That's the assumption some have made. Verse 40, But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful or anxious and troubled about many things. Verse 42, But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. This is a simple um, microcosm of, uh, of worship, even though it took place in a residence. Uh, in the modern day, we don't, uh, we don't need to get all caught up in uh, where you worship. We need to get caught up in that you worship. See, it's, it, your home could be a cathedral of God's work. And you and your family could gather around, and, and when you have your Bible reading, and I, I just think it ought to be, when you open your Bible and you start to read, and, and if God speaks and encourages you about some truth that you've read, I think you ought to take just a moment and stop and have a, have a time of praise and just give the Lord the glory for what He's doing and what He's done and how He's brought you to this place to understand Scripture. And You read it, you can see it. Uh, by the way, just the fact that you can read it, because there are people in America who can't read. And if our schools don't do better, there's going to be a bunch more people who can't read. But the point is, it's an issue of you being able to read. You can read. Then since you can read, you ought to thank the Lord that you can read what the Bible says. There are people in the world who haven't even seen a Bible, let alone been able to read one. You both have one and can read one. That's worthy of praise, and you ought to give the Lord the glory for that. And you can do it right there in your home. You can do it when you're privately in a closet while you have prayer or your bathroom, wherever it is you read the Scriptures privately, then you can stop and give the Lord the praise for it. In this particular case, this is in a home. The Lord Jesus is there. What's interesting about it is in verse 40, Martha is not thinking about worship. She's cumbered. Now, that's another thing. New Life Baptist Church doesn't need you to come to worship services cumbered. It's a, it's a idea, there's several ideas that come from the Greek word, but one of them would be that you have a lot on your mind. Coming to worship is like going to bed. If you go to bed with a lot of stuff on your mind, likelihood you're not going to sleep well. If you come to the worship service and you've brought a boatload of stuff that's not eternally valuable, you're probably not going to get to worship while you're here. You're probably going to be thinking of solving these problems. Uh, that's why I carry my notebook. This notebook is just full of stuff that, in one way or the other, uh, I have to take care of. Now, the thing about it is, I write it in here. This becomes uh, my prayer list also, so I can pray about these things that I've been asked to deal with. Uh, Carol gave me her son's prayer request this morning. I wrote it right in my notebook, and I'll be praying for Wendell, and I'll be asking the Lord to undertake for him. And the thing about that is, I'm responsible because I said to you, I'll pray for him. I obligated myself that I would pray for someone. Now, you should not take it lightly either when somebody says to you, would you pray about this? Uh, what that is is an opportunity for you to go to the Lord and you to join them in prayer for a certain need and so forth, and it will also give you a basis for more worship. Because when I hear a good word about Wendell, then I'm going to stop and I'm going to worship the Lord for what he has done in his behalf and taking care of his need when that day comes. So the fact is that um, in the case with Martha, she comes to uh, a time when she had a very wonderful opportunity. I mean, uh, you nor I have had the experience of being able to sit down in a, in a room with the Lord Jesus Christ sitting there in the flesh. Here's the Son of God, the Savior of the world, um, sitting in this residence and she's all cumbered about serving. Um, let me remind you of something. It's a simple thought, but it's important. The Lord does not need your service. He wants your love and affection. Why would I say that? Very simply. Whatever He wants to do, He'd say three words. Let there be, just like He created the world, and it would be there in a flash. Does he need us? Not in the least does he need us. Does he want us to serve him? Absolutely. 
Next week, I'll tell you something unique about the word serving and how it relates to the word worship. And there is a relationship. But understand that here's a case where Martha's all cumbered about it. She's all, she's all burdened with it. She's all uh, anxious about it. It's sort of overflowing her. And here's the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, sitting in the living room. Mary's sitting at his feet and absorbing everything that he's got to say. And Martha is getting bent out of shape because she feels this serving thing is serious and important and wonderful. And she wants to know why in the world he does not care. Forgive me. Dumbest question ever asked in the English language. Don't you care? Would any of you have the audacity to ask the Son of God, don't you care? Uh, believe me, I wouldn't. And I wouldn't, wouldn't want to stand close to the one who asked it. You know, I just wouldn't do that. That's, that's absolutely absurd. And she should have known he cared. Or he wouldn't have been in this residence. But he was there because he cared about something greater than the service she could render. I don't care. I, I, I didn't care if it was uh, if it was apple pie and glazed over with a, a great sweet glaze like you put on donuts. I don't care if it was chicken and dumplings or chicken pot pie. I don't care if it was fried chicken. I don't care what she was working on and what she was so cumbered about. I don't care what it was. There was something more important than that. And what was more important than that was being at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping. Let him speak. Let him talk. Let me listen. Let me absorb. Let my mind be saturated with what he's got to say. And when I walk out of here, I'll be different because I've been with the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, isn't it true that they, the disciples early on, they perceived that they had been with Jesus? Sure. So the fact is you can't run with him. You can't spend time with him. You can't read about him. You can't think on the terms of what he was thinking and meditating on the word that he did. You can't come away from that not being changed. Or can we? Are you changed? Is he changing you? Are you what you are now, what you were a year ago? Six months ago? Are you different because he's changed you? Worship, true worship, changes people. Oh, you may seem like you're foolish, you know, and and crazy. Uh, I'm usually in my office on Monday morning, and uh, usually, I say usually, uh, because I come in at very sundry times. Sometimes I come in real early. If I get up real, real early, I need to get out and get coming. I've, I've come in the past, and I've been in my office. I've been over there when the sun came up. I remember one morning specifically. I was reading a text of Scripture, and it talked about the sun. I just got caught up in it, and I went over to the windows on the on the east side, and I'm standing there with my Bible open, and the sun just began to come up. And I, I can't explain it. All I can tell you is my heart uh, just began to sing, uh, "How great Thou art." I'm not a singer, you know. I'm a I'm a raspy voiced old preacher. But what is this? When I stood there and began to sing, "How great Thou art," I'm telling you. It was as if the Lord was standing right in the room, right beside of me, and we were singing together. How great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. And I'm telling you that God's people need to get to a point where they lose themselves in their worship of the Lord. I'm not talking about just dismissing your brain. I'm not talking about becoming foolish or silly or stupid. I'm talking about you being free to worship God from the depths of your soul and praising Him and lifting your voice in praise and not be cumbered. And I say to you, too many Christians are cumbered about much service and what they're missing is not enough worship. Martha had service on her mind and that's not a bad thing when it is balanced with worship. And I'll show you next time we're together how that Mary balances worship and service. She does them both. But she's commended here because she has picked the needful thing. And there's so many things in the Christian life that are not needful that we sometimes pick up on. And what it does, it has a tendency to dampen a spirit of worship. I'll stop here, but uh, I don't want you to stop there. I want you to think...
in terms of your worship and uh, and don't think in terms of uh, what people think about it. I, I want you to think about it. We'll not sing this evening as we have been uh, accustomed to doing in the past, that is on the Sunday evenings of late. Uh, we just take the truth of the Word and, and um, take it to heart and I hope you take it home with you and I hope you think on these things. But I hope that you'll um, take it a step further and take it as a workshop of worship, like what Moses was engaged in with the Lord. And I hope that you'll think about it of, of lifting up to a new level of your sensitivity when you come to worship. If the New Life Baptist Church would have time of worship privately during the course of the week when they're alone with God, and then when they came to church on Sunday, they would just sing with freshness, and excitement and genuine article of praise from their hearts. Brother Mike wouldn't be able to contain himself up here. The, 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 the voices of people rejoicing in the Lord. I don't care how good you sing or how bad you sing. When people worship the Lord and do it from the heart under the auspices of God's Spirit, it will make people around them aware the Lord is in this place. We used to sing a song years ago. Uh, I don't remember all of it, but surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I can hear the hush of angels' wings. I see glory on each face. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. That will happen when God's people worship alone and privately and don't come cumbered to the services when it's time to worship. And even when uh, your heart gets broken... Mine's been broken. Yours been broken. I can remember times and occasions when my heart was broken. And I can remember worshiping. Didn't know what the next step I would take. But I knew the one who could make it and help me make the next step. And I gave him glory for what he had done and what he was going to do. And my heart was lifted up in praise even when my heart was broken. So I hope that you'll take seriously this thing of worship. And next week we'll uh, finalize this text and some more to add to it. And I hope that that too will be of help to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.